What is going on, everybody? It is Gage Brock here with another Tiefling Talks podcast, and we have a very interesting guest, uh, another one of our good friends that uh, we play with on Friday nights, and uh, she is uh, a DM for another set of group of people that uh, Brock actually plays in as well. Um, Tori, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and... Yeah, um, so my name is Tori. I've known these two knuckleheads for about over two years now, and uh, I'm just happy to be here. Oh, God. <laughs> that sentiment will not last long here. Don't worry. Oh, I've been lying the entire time. <sighs> That's more like it. Yeah, there, there we go. go. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, you know, uh, it's been a little bit since we recorded our last one, and uh, so we figured we'd be, get back in the saddle and uh, uh, get back on the mics, talk to everybody, and uh, I think this is, what, uh, episode or uh, part five? Yeah, it's got to be somewhere in the area, at least. Yeah. Look at how organized um, and prepared we are. Yeah. Congratulations on five episodes. Yeah, and we haven't been... Uh... You know, DNA or DM8 or anything. Yeah. No, not yet. Oh, we'll get there. One day. One near future day. Um, well, with that being said, uh, the first kind of little topic to get things rolling is the uh, Wizards of the Coast purchasing D&D Beyond and what this could entail for everyone who uses the platform as well as other things. Um you know, my first initial thoughts of this are a little frightened, but also a little hopeful because on one end, I hear a lot of DMs and I have had the chance to talk to quite a few. Um, and uh, a lot of them have said that, uh, you know, they know that Wizards of the Coast is a very money hungry corporate type of deal. And, you know, I haven't had that much of experience with them over the years, so I can't really speak to that personally. Um, and I'm hoping that my hope, I guess, side of this is that, uh, uh, D&D Beyond, uh, evolves and gets better and doesn't really subtract features or make things harder for players to use, because that's one of the things that's really good about D&D Beyond is you can send any new player that knows almost nothing about, uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons to make a character sheet and it explains everything. It walks you through every piece of it and holds your hand on uh, every aspect. So I'm really hoping Wizards of the Coast doesn't make that harder to use. Yeah, I mean, that's how I got into D&D in the first place too because when when I was first invited to the Friday game, I my friend who invited me uh, basically was like, do you know how to make a character sheet? And I was like, not really, but I found a website and it was D&D Beyond and thankfully everyone else used it. And it's what I send all of my players to use as well. People who've never played it before. I'm like, it's just an easy step-by-step -step process. So if it starts to get sort of like really paywalled or anything like that, I'm going to be really concerned because, you know, D&D should be accessible to everyone. Yeah, you can get um, books or modules, anything to kind of enhance your game, but really these sort of resources should be available to anyone who wants to get into the scene. Right. And that's kind of uh, how I feel about it 
in a general sense as well because at the end of the day you know like it's it's a very inviting site being so user friendly and that's kind of one of the pluses of having it because you know you you get new people and you send them to this and it really does kind of pull them in because they see all these features and the availability to really just go wild with whatever they want and you know that that draws in a lot of people because a lot of people assume D&D is literally just sit there you fight stuff and you occasionally purchase new gear or find new gear and that's not the case anymore D&D has expanded so vastly to just being you know for instance on Mondays I run a shop owner simulator basically where a group of players literally just own a tavern and they run it well that's oddly wholesome um yeah cuz with uh D&D Beyond like my my personal experience was I started playing D&D pen and paper for about a year and a half. Um, when I was first introduced to D&D also, it was pen and paper. Um, and it was very off-putting at first because it was pen and paper. It was unfamiliar and like scary almost. But having the uh, having somebody there that actually knew what was going on at the... Uh, at my start helped definitely but uh with the dnd beyond like kind of tutorial-esque interface where they just like walk you through it while i still prefer physical character sheets dnd beyond is by far the best website for generating them and for onboarding new players as well right and uh you know, something I like from the DM standpoint is having access to all those assets, the the monsters, the weapons, all of that, because um, I use Foundry and Foundry actually allows me uh, to import everything I own to allow my character or players to um, quickly use the assets I own through D&D Beyond on Foundry. And uh, that way I don't have to try and go through and remake every one of those assets uh, in Foundry, which is not particularly hard, but it is time consuming. Um, and so it's really nice to have that as a DM because, you know, it takes a lot of the work out of having to make more stuff and it allows you to run your games a lot more efficiently, a lot more faster. You know, when your player's like, oh, hey, you know, I, I was wondering if the shopkeeper had this and it's not listed. Well, you can just simply pull, drag, and drop. Now the shopkeeper has it versus having to go in and be like, okay, give me a second, create an item, uh, give the item the description, go through and do all the details about what this item does, the saves, you know, everything else. So it's really nice to have that on top of the uh, ability to homebrew uh, a lot of specific things. So um, being able to homebrew sub uh, classes, um, I believe you can homebrew monsters, you can homebrew items. So it is that is really game changing. Yeah. And like, here's bringing it back around to the concerns about Wizards of the Coast taking uh, buying off D&D Beyond is that for people who do use um, other resources like Foundry, I do as well. Um, there's a concern there where, you know, they might start to see all of these other resources as um, competitors in this sort of online digital field. And it might not make it as easy to import all of your stuff from D&D Beyond now that um, Wizards is uh, scooping it up. Yeah, and that's that's something I'm very much scared of because, you know, they, they could block the method that it's used to kind of import your stuff that you already own on this website. 
and block it from being able to be ported over and used on another website that you pay to use or have paid to own. And so that's that's very scary because we're moving away from a site that we know freely gives us access to something we buy. Once we have it, we have full, complete access to it. We can share it with people if we want to. We can um, import it into another system, so on and so forth. And I'm afraid that it's going to turn into, oh, well, you bought it on D&D Beyond after Wizards of the Coast purchased uh, D&D Beyond. They're going to say um, something along the lines of, oh, well, just because you bought it on here doesn't give you access to use it on other sites. And that's terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah. Go ahead. I just... My thought was lost. Um... <laughs> no, you're good. Um, you know, because the, the worst part is having to buy this not only digitally once, but also having to buy it digitally a second time and not even own a physical copy at that point. That is just straight up ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, and I, I did finally remember my point. Um, I was going to say is that I heard that there were whispers of um, them eventually optimizing their own virtual tabletop as well. So that just, again, they might lock all of that content into their own virtual tabletop. And then you don't know if you need a D&D Beyond uh, subscription to access this or if it's a buy once you have it sort of thing like foundry or if it's completely different where you have to buy something uh from the wizards of the coast website uh, right it just it all starts to become rather uh rather than just streamlined it's just, it's going to become like a jumbled mess basically exactly yeah and yeah, yeah that's absolutely terrifying because you know you're sitting here and you're buying it once on D&D Beyond, then you got to buy it for another site and another site and it becomes an issue. And that's where it really sucks because, you know, I am very hopeful, very, very hopeful because I don't have as much experience as people who have been DMing for 30 plus years as I'm uh, always reminded uh, every time new players join, they're like, oh, I've been playing for 25 years. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, you know more than me. That's fine. Um, and you know, so to sit there and hear all of them say always bad experiences in the past, you know, that, that very much terrifies me from their track record. However, I still going to remain unbiased and remain hopeful that, you know, they're willing to do the right thing. They're not going to change too much. If they don't change too much, that's great. If they change it in a, uh, a positive way, fantastic. Just please don't change it in a negative way. That is the only thing I ask. Yeah, I just hope that they don't punish the people who have already bought that content. You know, that's like the main concern. Right. And, um, you know, my, my hope is that with the purchase of D&D Beyond, we start getting discounts and codes for physical copies or vice versa, you know, and it kind of works both ways and it works out in some manner like that. That'd be awesome if um, Wizards of the Coast is able to implement a way to make custom classes and races in the homebrew section of D&D Beyond, fantastic. I'm all for that as well. I wonder, yeah, I wonder what that will mean for the homebrew sort of uh, feature of D&D Beyond because it don't really, Wizards of the Coast is eh about when people take their, uh, their property and kind of creative license stuff. I, I think back on, um, there was this, it was a different sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a different kind of system, but it was for Pokemon. And between the Wizards and the Coast and Nintendo, they uh, 
they struck that down real fast. Really? I didn't oh, know yeah. That. Yeah, there's like, you can't find any of the source books for this old one anymore. And my friends wanted to play it and we just, we couldn't find it. I mean, I definitely expect that from, uh, what is that? Uh, Nintendo, because they did the same thing when people tried to make like Pokemon uh, Pixelmon servers on Minecraft. They like instantly came in. They're like, yeah, you can't do that. We'll sue the shit out of you. Yeah, but I, I, I feel like Wizards of the Coast wasn't going to stop them. <laughs> right. You know, like I, I, I feel like Wizards of Coast may have just kind of not really cared. You may have had other priorities, but at the same time, you know, if Nintendo approached them, it's like, hey, you can't do this. Then obviously they're like, OK, we don't want to get sued. So we're pulling everything. And so that's why I'm kind of scared about um, the homebrew section is if they come in and they have some sort of automated system that filters through homebrew and it's like, nope, that's too close to original content. It's gone. That's too close to original content. It's gone because you look through the homebrew section on D&D Beyond, you can find a lot of stuff in there that, um, you know, you can is, find a and, lot of dupes for uh, paid content. Yeah, right. And um, so, you know, that's one way for players to get around it because i know there's there's a whole side of uh D where players think that the game should be free you know um yeah you should buy some of the source books but other than that you know why are you going to make the uh, players each pay for the book uh to have it you know um why go through all of that a lot of people believe that once you somebody in your group uh whether it's your dm or just a player has one of the books there shouldn't be a reason everybody has to go around and get the book yeah, I probably, like, within reason fall into that camp. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I get it. Like, uh, on one hand, D&D was brought up as a free game. And it definitely still can be, you know. And there's still, you can find f plenty of forums to find free games um, hosted by DMs and stuff like that. Um, but I think it, we're moving into an era uh, of monetizing everything. Uh, everybody's hobbies have a way to be monetized every uh site or platform you go to is monetized you know it, it's it's no longer like uh it's basically like when you watch those future movies and you see that there's ads on everything there's pop-ups everywhere in the sci-fi 2050 future um and i think that's the route we're heading towards or the next step we're stepping into is where everything just has these ads well yeah i mean like D&D has become one of those really popular hobbies nowadays, especially with the pandemic. Like, it, yeah, and you know, it, it was the only natural course world. for it to go to. Yeah, it, yeah, as well, critical role. Yeah, and um, you know, it's obviously we're here trying to get in on the niche as well. You know, trying <laughs> to carve our own little spot into this before um, it becomes too overcrowded. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we do it because. We all enjoy it. We absolutely love the hobby. It's we're not here because we're trying to find um, any way to make money, um, but we're we're here because we love talking about. It. We love talking about this stuff. We love um, kind of having somebody to bounce these uh, ideas and theories off of. It's it's always nice to have somebody to kind of just share uh, a passion for something. You know. Yeah, that's what I I, I do like about. A certain corner of the D&D community is that, like, it's, it, there is really, like, a community part about it. Like, I, I don't want to get into the, 
the the toxicy sort of corner but for the, for the most part anyone who I've sort of just met online talking about D&D like always welcoming always helpful I I don't want I don't want monetization to deter people from joining this kind of community because in a lot of ways it can be like a real home for people Oh definitely um I I definitely feel like you know at the end of the day that people can find a common cause here, a common place that they can settle in and really just have fun, let loose, uh, forget about what's happening in their life and delve into the life of another player or another person, another character. Um, and so that stuff's always cool. Um, and so, you know, on the other hand of it, yeah, you know, if you want something on the more professional end and you want to play it like a game and you want somebody to tailor an experience for you, then yeah, you look at the paid side of things. You look at the um, paid hosted games and you look at those and uh, you look for something where, you know, the, the DM is actively trying to create an experience that you guys enjoy and not just running another module or running um, some sort of uh, straight path type game. Um, because that that's ultimately, you know, something that everyone looks for, something that makes them feel included. Right. As good as the modules are, and man, some of the modules that uh, Wizards of the Coast have released are actually really good. It just, I don't know, it doesn't really compare to the personalized experience that like a DM can provide to a set of players in their own story. But it does take a lot of work on the DM side. I mean... Oh yeah, like definitely. Wizards of the Coast has whole teams dedicated to making modules, and look how infrequently they put out content. Right, and for a a single person to turn around and create an entire world for a bunch of players—that's insane. You know, like the DM has to constantly try to figure out balances and figure out what's the best route to do, what's something that is engaging. Because you know, at the end of the day, Wizards of the Coast, yes, it's a company. They're out to make money. That is what a company does you know that is why it is there um at the end of the day when you come up to a dm who is running a homebrew he is there to make a world for you um he is there to uh he or she i should say uh is there to uh make a world uh that tailors an experience around having fun for everyone at the table and not just a uh stick and sand type of adventure I think it also kind of goes like both ways when, because I'm also a DM, haha. Um, but I think it also goes both ways for you. everyone is kind of there creating a story, at least how I see, it, especially for these like longer sort of uh, involved games. Um, in my home game, I have uh, my players constantly uh, DM me uh, stories that they want to include, and like I have someone who um wants to make sort of like a small mini uh one shot uh but like within my world and they're like I, I need information about this sort of thing and I'm like I'll give you the foundation but you write it yourself do my homework for me absolutely but it's just like I I love this collaborative storytelling that D&D provides cuz yeah sure if you you want to write a story you write a book or whatever but there's something just a little more in depth exactly in depth about having this group of people creating this world with you right and you know that's that's the thing is having that kind of uh, you know that being that little dm secret i have is you know i let you guys 
say what you want during the campaign. And, you know, I draw from that sometimes, you know, because you guys will be sitting there and you guys will uh, say something along the lines of, man, I really hope that we don't run into anything uh, high CR on the way there because it'd be hard to defend this cart. And then all of a sudden it pops in my head. Okay, well, that's an interesting encounter. Sure, let's do that. And, you know, it, it, it does, it, it's playing off of each other. And that's the best thing about homebrew games is unlike a module where you have to pretty much stick to the rules in order for it to be balanced in the way the module is supposed to be or um, to be um, flexible in the way the module is supposed to be, however it's written. Because um, at the end of the game, in order for that to be a challenging encounter, any deviation could throw that off substantially and it could be even harder or it could be even easier if you decide, yeah, I'll let my characters go off on a little side mission and find a flame tongue rapier, but then you take them to fight a uh, frost elemental, you know, obviously that thing's going to get wrecked. Um, whereas uh, homebrew, I can give you guys a flame tongue rapier and I can find enemies that kind of still take the damage, but not as impactful as just one going in, taking three hits, things dead. You guys move on. Whew. Um, I think that is uh, pretty much all I had on the kind of Wizards of the Coast buying D and D Beyond. Like I said, still very hopeful that um they do the right thing. Um, a little skeptical about the kind of track record I've been hearing about them because, like I said, I've only been playing Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition for. I'd say a little over three years now, and my experience is vastly more limited than people that have been in this game for 20, 30, 40 years, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, what depending on whatever they decide to do for D&D Beyond and how that affects the community, at the end of the day, like, D&D is truly what you make of it. You You don't have to go by what Wizards of the Coast offers you, like, D&D is for you and your party. It's There's not one right way to play it and how to use whatever content they have. Right. Again, right. homebrew. Homebrew is your best friend. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. It's it's so easy to get into and it's it seems it seems really daunting at first, uh, especially being a DM thinking, where do I start? What do I do? How how do I what do I, you know, what is everything? And it does, it's very daunting at first, but once you tackle that initial hurdle of, okay, um, plan out X, Y, and Z, and then you've got a base foundation and you build off of that and you don't have to build an entire world. You build the starting area your players play in and you continue to build the adventure as they go along. That is something you is totally okay to do as a DM. Um, and I guarantee there are plenty of DMs that run by the seat of their pants out there. That's part of homebrew. And so, um, you know, going in and just running it session by session or even just planning one session ahead, you know, say your group talks about going to the next town over. Cool. You make the next town over. When you got free time, you maybe you make a couple extra encounters that you might be able to throw in their way whenever you see fit or even kind of make a couple towns over. But at the end of the day, you really only have to prep for what your party foresees themselves doing. I mean, yeah, that's how I, I started. I just... I wanted to make a game for my friends and I, I made uh, like three maps and I was like, all right, let's get into this. And I just been winging it ever since and they seem to enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Brock, 
you have been awfully quiet, but that is probably because me and Tori have been like talking a lot. Well, there's also like I don't have any. Well, I shouldn't say I don't have any. I have very little experience in the DM side of things. I've only really won like little one shots and uh, combat encounters. Well, uh, then as a player, from your standpoint, when you play in homebrews, is it easy to tell whether a DM is flying by the seat of their pants or if they are kind of they've got the full plan going? Like, is that something that you uh, can actively notice as a player? Because from my standpoint, I don't know if you guys can tell if I'm running by the seat of my pants or I've planned this a week in advance or two months in advance, whatever. So that's why I'm kind of curious is like, are there tells or is there anything where you can kind of get a glimpse of, oh, he didn't really expect this? Yeah, I think that a lot of it boils down to like knowing the DM before you know how they DM. Like knowing you as a person, I know that you're like flexible with how things can occur. And like you had mentioned, like listening in on the players and building the world based around what they say. Um versus i have played with some other dms which i ended up leaving the game of the one that i'm about to use as an example but they claimed that it was a home of the world um and it oddly resembled curse of strahd but let it slide and it seems like no matter what we do there was no like development in the world around what we did like we could anger a noble and then in the next scene the noble would come ask us for help and pretend like nothing had happened like he didn't know us uh just because that was what was written down and that's what he's reading probably right from the curse of strad book but still like it just with certain people their preconceived notion is that it's a story that you run for the players or like you run them through the story as opposed to like the players running the story right a collaborative if that kind of makes sense yeah yeah Yeah, going back to the the whole idea of like having the players involved in the story like bringing up their backgrounds and stuff like that like you guys were talking about well yeah just because i mean me as a play when i'm a player i love when backstories are brought up and stuff because then that really cements your character into the world rather than just like it being a sheet you know yeah yeah like it i have in my in my home game i have um one of my characters uh they're the kid of these um really famous adventurers so whenever and they're they're really boisterous about it. So whenever they meet someone new, they go, "Hi, my name's May Vobert," um, and I have to roll every time to see if they recognize the name. Oh my god! It 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 leads to some really funny, uh, really funny uh, encounters there. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Then yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, I, I just there's something about when. Uh, as a DM, when I can formulate a backstory or at least get a player's input on what they want for their backstory and then really work something into the game. So when it happens, it's like that kind of their eyes light up type of moment, like, but you hear it in their voice. You know what I mean? Where you hear them kind of, uh, kind of go, no way, really? And then you're like, yeah, really? And then everybody's like, oh my God. And it's, it's one of those moments that like, you know, it's not just for the player. 
when I build a backstory arc to go on or a moment that really the player can own because those those also make uh, me as a DM feel really great knowing that I'm making somebody else really happy about a fictional mind game, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a... It wasn't really to their backstory, but uh, I'll give some context for the story. Sure. So when I first... Uh, so I have a, a group of six players, um, and originally it was going to be two separate groups, but I decided to bring them both together. And when I had first run the first session zero for my second group, um, I had a player in it who was only there for the first one because he had some scheduling issues, so he couldn't stay. Um, but he did have this really like in-depth backstory, and he didn't like info dump on them, but he definitely, you know, like he wasn't secretive about like where he was from in the world and stuff like that. So um, it 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 sucked that we couldn't continue to explore his character and stuff, but I. Whenever I have a player in my game, I make sure that their character stays in the world no matter what, even if they're not there. And so months later, they're in this town and they're talking to this uh, clergy woman and they're talking, they, they're, they're missing um, a kid that they've been sort of traveling with and he's been kidnapped. So they went to this orphanage to see if he was there. He was not. Um, and they're like, well, my husband um, is a bit of a nose to the grindstone kind of person um maybe he can help you find them and they're like oh what's his name and i and i was just like oh his name's timos she was talking to characters who have never met this person before but two of the other players who had played that first session with him were like i'm shaking in my boots right now tori and it was such a beautiful moment of just it was a part of their history not the other four people in the group didn't know what was going on, but these two knew who Timos was. And it was such like, such a yes, got him sort of moment. It was so good. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, something not really the same, but similar uh, is, you know, that that meme that's floating around where, you know, the greatest honor a DM can give you is having your player in another one of his campaigns. And um, so... Brock can attest to this, uh, the game we just ran, um, so, uh, or the campaign we're running, uh, we just ran before recording this, uh, a little while ago, they happened to find a bunch of Warforged, and, uh, there's a command bot that is in control of all the Warforged because of the fact that, um, uh, they all need kind of like a, a central hub to kind of get their commands from, and it's this central Warforged. And sure enough, I brought Cayman in as that central Warforged. And so <laughs> the moment that happened, Brock started messaging me. He's like, you son of a... And, you know, just, just going at it. I'm like, yeah, this is the moment, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, Yeah, as a DM, you live for those moments. And, you know, that he's... Cayman's not the only one that is actually in this uh, Silver Dawn campaign I'm running. And uh, I can't wait for Brock to see... Who else is here? Yeah, I mean, like when, because Brock and I were both players in your Sunday session there. When you brought in our characters from Friday, yeah, that was that was just like a, like a wait what kind of moment. It was so cool. Yeah, and it, it's fun because then you, uh, I believe you guys were able to fight a couple of them, and you guys saw the 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 kind of power that they brought into the world. But you know, it was a competitive adventuring party, you know, and 
Um, I believe you get when you guys uh, finally made it over to the other side, you made it to the tavern, and you got to meet up with uh, Gage, the original Warforged, uh, before I played Vol. Um, you, Nick, didn't actually get to meet him, but I know um, uh, for a moment it was kind of cool because you know I was able to step back into that role of Gage and be this paladin kind of artificer that was able to help you guys out and decided to stay behind while the cart went off, and that was... For me personally, that was a really cool moment because I got to talk about another um, player that I played and, you know, kind of relive that. And, uh, you know, it, it saddens me because I had it set up with Chris to have uh, Chris's, um, the orc he has that kind of can speak to us, you know, meta. And uh, yeah, I was meta. I was actually going to have meta show up in the uh, campaign at one point, but uh, time ran a little short and we weren't able to get to that part, but it was going to be really cool if you guys went south and you guys, uh, before the Titan awoke and you guys were able to get down there because that's where Meta was and uh, you guys would have been able to kind of meet up with him and he would have kind of given you some jarring information about Chris's world and you guys would be like, okay, this dude's insane. This, uh, he's a psycho. I mean, anything coming out of Chris's mind is a psycho, so. This is very true, yeah. <laughs> I would like to think Chris is just a culmination of all of us as one person. We funnel our energy into him and he is the uh he is the uh final result of all of our insane optimization, madness, theories, ideas. Oh yeah, he's just funny. like all of that and then busts it up to eleven. It's so much fun. Yeah, funny you should mention culmination of our optimization and bullshit and shenanigans. Oh, that's right. Oh let's, my god. Let's start talking about this boss fight. Oh, oh my, my god. god. So we're all three of us here are in the uh the Friday game, so we all are uh experienced this. But uh so um uh I play last time on Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh I play a uh half tiefling half uh daywalker vampire called vol brock uh you play uh cayman uh also ham but in this instance cayman's more prevalent and then yep. um tori you play uh tiefling nick and my boy nick my yeah boy. and so um vol and cayman actually went off on their kind of own little uh side adventure when we had some downtime and we decided to make some simulacrums of ourselves and I believe we sent them out, if I'm not mistaken, to kind of garner more support for the the Wagner brothers. Yep. And they got it in their minds that they were the originals and we were the clones and we were trying to use the party, which, you know, like I said in game, we're all kind of using each other to for our own means. Let's be honest. We're all kind of together because we work together, but also because, you know, we're all helping each other towards our final goals. I don't know. Nick's just kind of there. He's just hanging out. Yeah, but well, I, I would think Nick has something that he wants to kind of complete, something he wants to do. I mean, there's got to be a reason why Kane's his patron now. He wants to complete his memories. We don't talk about that right now. That's true, yeah. <laughs> but uh, He hasn't told anyone, so... Oh, right, right, right. But, um... No, uh, the simulacrums then went off and they were gone for some time doing their own thing. And then we uh, fast forward to last Friday's session. Uh, we run into a boss room and there is a person called Volman. And uh, this is a mashup of both uh, Vol and Cayman. And for those that don't know, 
Cayman is uh, or Brock is the only min maxer in our group. Okay, uh, I have oh, nothing. Oh, uh, I have nothing to do with min maxing. I don't uh, believe in the stuff. Excuse me, I called you a mini maxer, and I'll still stand by that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, well, your three attacks a turn with a shit ton of modifiers are a uh, little conspicuous on your end. But what do you mean? I'm just I'm I have twelve lovers levels into fighter. Twelve lovers. Lovers, yes. Oh, lovers just one, just wow. one. impressive <laughs> oh man so you have yeah, one lover in hexblade and then 12 levels in warlock yeah it's not it's not explained but it's uh, just yeah optimizing your character it's right fun. right needless to, to say i deal a massive amount of damage cayman has a massive amount of buffs and ac and then nick also equally deals a lot of damage for a fighter well, that's just his fancy little sword he got from Hal. So, if if I didn't have that sword, I'd I'd probably only be doing a maximum of maybe sixty damage a turn. If I didn't at have... level twelve, yeah, thirteen. At, at level thirteen, yeah. If I didn't have the assassin feat or whatever that is that Chris let me have so uh, graciously, where it times fives my damage anytime I get a crit, um. I wouldn't be dealing nearly as much damage, but I, I'd still probably get up around 100 uh, even without it. But with it, I was able, I think, oh, God, I think I got roughly around uh, 680 or 670 uh, damage um, in like three turns. So that's that's kind of where Vol stands. Uh, I know Cayman stands on the end of having high AC. What What's the max AC Cayman can get to? Let me pull up his sheet, because, like, after he went away, it wasn't just AC. I bumped that down in order to get saving throws as well. Right, and Chris also let us know that he also very much nerfed uh, Volman because if he did take the best of both Vol and Cayman, I really doubt we'd stand a chance. I think only crits would really do anything. Yeah. Right, and that would be the only saving grace is that he allows crits to always hit. If that wasn't like his ruling, then we'd be screwed. There would be my bow literally does plus 17 and that will barely, barely at the max get over the kind of AC hit. Yeah, I mean, my sword does 12, I think, plus 12. Everybody's probably yeah. listening. They're thinking plus 12, plus 17. What the heck? What do you guys got? And you know, Are you guys level 20s? No, no. Uh, no, we're no, just, we just get stupid amounts of items. <laughs> stupid amount of items in a very broken campaign, but we love it so much. Oh god, yes. it is so chaotic, dumb, and that is our vibe. It mm -hmm. is. It's so nice because it's it's the type. It's not the type of campaign you go into and you play it real serious, like, and you're role playing. You're into it. You know, we still get into it pretty well, but it's the type where we can all sit back, relax, crack a bunch of jokes, and just have fun really let loose you know and um for 95 percent of it it's a judgment-free zone um the other five percent is uh uh josh um <laughs> but uh you know um with his new character dude i'm really digging oh the God, vibe he brings yes he he is playing that character so well and it's it's you know i didn't think josh had this type of personality to play in him if i'm gonna be honest um going yeah. from playing his 
uh, a lawful good character where it was a real straight laced person to playing a character that was, yeah, let's just fight everything. It was still on the side of like, I have morals, I have standards. Our group has none of that. So keep this in mind. And then going to Higgy, who is just slapping insults left and right and, uh, you know, just just keeping it real lively and real, <laughs> real funny. It was uh Oh Higgy definitely belongs in the wild cards. Oh yeah. Higgy just has so much sass and it's great. Mm-hmm. And Josh plays it so well. I didn't yeah. I was not expecting that the first time he was introduced, I was just like I who is this guy? Did we just get a new party member? What the heck? Not to say Josh wasn't fun before, but there were the the moments of funny that kind of Josh brought were not intentional on his end it was always something yeah. he did that we kind of all were like ah you know this is intentional him and it is amazing yeah, yeah we got I... a little taste of this when we were playing left for dead 2 with him and we were all like yelling slurs and shit in chat while we were trying to get through it but this is a whole new level and it's consistent oh yeah, yeah. i think i think it has to do with the fact that like we've played with josh for so much now that he's able to like really get into a character i think we've rubbed off on him over the course of the last that couple well. of years that, it, that it's well, it's yeah. we've basically given them little chips of each of us to kind of funnel into a new character and um you know it's definitely 50 percent him but then the other 50 percent is the culmination of the group uh influence on him and i think we finally got him to a point where um you know he he feels he can be comfortable enough making certain jokes with us and being on a certain level with us and that's really cool it's really cool mm -hmm. that he's able to finally kind of feel comfortable enough cracking a few jokes and you know saying what he says mm -hmm. like yeah. <laughs> when we were talking about um the railgun and we were higgy was on the seeds or whatever and he's like oh that was you oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> he's like i think i'm out of my element here i should probably leave mm -hmm. <laughs> and if we were like oh higgy you're, no, you're here to stay forever. You're one of us. One of us. Oh man, that was Google gobble, Google gobble. <laughs> oh man, Higgy is jiggy with it, man. I'm telling you, mm -hmm. and uh, we are we're so happy. I mean, uh, you know, I, I feel bad that his other characters really couldn't mesh with the group, but you know, we, as I said, we are a chaotic, stupid group, and that's just you know what. Like besides the whole like, w w w let's not get into it, but uh, moment that Nick and Drac had. Um, Nick still had has like a soft spot for Drac because he keeps calling him his best friend. Oh, I bet you I bet Nick has a soft spot. I bet Nick has a real hard spot for Drac too. <laughs> and no, for anyone but, that um, can't tell the joke, uh, they Nick and Drac had a had a night. Let's call it that. Orgy. Yeah. Yeah, but it there was a lot of drinking involved. Anyways, it when uh. When Josh said that he was uh, switching characters, I was like, wait, I need to really quickly get something for Drek. I have, um, when we were in the town just before all of this big, this whole town just turned on us, um, I bought a, a wooden bear for him. So when he comes back, he gets a wooden bear. Nice. Or, if, uh, or if Nick dies. Uh, one one of you has to give it to him. I'll, I'll we'll make sure it gets passed on. Speaking of, I still got that trinket I got to give to Cayman from Gage with the little oh, shit, voice recording. Um, but 
anyway, uh, yeah, so we walk into this boss fight room and, you know, I, me and uh, Brock were uh, privy to the information because uh, Chris had recently or the week before reached out to us and wanted to talk to us after the session uh, the week before whenever the last session we had before was. Was this when I was like, hey, what y'all all talking about? And you're like, oh, nothing, by the way, get the fuck out. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was that. Okay. <laughs> um, but he, he was talking, he's basically um, kind of asking permission about uh, using the character and, you know, he really never needs to ask permission to do something like that. Like that's where I'm always okay with that. You know, it's always a terrifying moment, but I remember me and Brock sitting there and we're, we're just talking about it and we're trying to discuss battle strategies, but we have to discuss it in front of Chris because anything me and Brock would come up with for Vol and Cayman, he would, he should know because they are simulacrums of us. So they would have any type of battle strategy me and him had. Um, the, uh, so that happened, and I just I remember the fear, the the sinking feeling in my chest when I heard that he is combining both of them to fight us, and I was like, "Oh God, well, I'm gonna start making a new character sheet." Yeah, I mean, like when when we walked into that, and as someone who wasn't privy to this knowledge, I was like, "Oh no, we're gonna die." It's it's scary because he he lets us get only, so powerful. The only saving grace is that Chris can't roll, but you know, this is very true. Yeah, yes. He still he still hit me with a hundred and seventy four damage, and I was like, oh no. Actually, Ava hit you with that. Let's that, be honest. That was that was kind of to Ava. be fair. Yes, that was, and that was an Ava move. But, bruh. Yeah, it was it was a lot of damage. There was a there, in general, everybody was dishing out some damage. Um, I know me and uh, Brock kind of pulled out the uh the pulled all the stops and really um went for it and tried to kind of deliver our best performance, our best optimized performance. Um, I know I got super lucky realizing that uh, I crit on 19s now with that f assassin feat as well. So, um. You know, that that helped out greatly because I looked at the roll and I'm like, damn, dude, I really needed a, a crit with Volchalia to give somebody that uh, that extra critical because um, to everyone that doesn't know, Chris gave a, the party a bunch of weapons um, from one of the kind of original founders of the world, like I guess the anti-void faction. Um, but either way, we all got a bunch of weapons and mine was a rapier uh, made from wood. But what happens is when I activate it, I get a plus two to my decks. I get 10 additional uh, feet of movement and then I get something else. But then on top of that, I also get uh, anytime I roll a critical, I can then um, not only do I take that critical in combat, but I can also um, opt to give somebody else a critical for their next attack. And so uh, what happens is once they get that critical, they also have to roll a d20 and they take that plus some five damage and it heals me. Um, so because it's playing into a kind of vampire-esque thing, but there's also uh, 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 some Seraph of the End anime kind of inspiration drawn in there. And so uh, I got that crit. I realized it. I'm like, great. And I'm like, okay where best does this crit need to go in order for somebody to really just wail on this guy? Like, who do I give this to that it maximizes? And so I asked and 
you know, I, I knew it was going to be between I know it's a podcast, but I'm raising my hand. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was either going to be between uh, Cayman or uh, Nick. Uh, so Brock or Tori. And I, you know, I asked because I, I literally had no idea. I didn't know where Brock was at and his kind of stance of what he was trying to do and complete. I didn't know what Nick had. And then, uh, Nick, you want to kind of describe kind of how this crit took uh, effect and kind of what happened because of it? So when I get a crit, because of my uh, special um, sword from hell, uh, I get to do, whenever I crit, the damage is times by six for either living or dead creatures. Um, it's It says this because before the... the the blade was cut in half, so it was only four. Um, it was times six before for dead, and then times three for living, but now it's just six for living or dead. Um, and then, say for whatever reason, um, it killed him, which obviously it's not going to because he has too much health. Um, that damage would carry on to someone else who I choose to hit. Um, so I really do bank on crits now to do like 167 damage or something like that yeah. on one hit and then as a level 12 fighter i get two more attacks after that and then there's a possibility of another crit especially if i have friends next to me right you know so crits play a pretty big role in our group now and it's kind of finding the best way to to get to those crits and you know for everyone listening, uh, especially if uh, any DMs listen and they're kind of listening to this horror story, um, you know, just an absolute nightmare of damage. Yeah. Uh, just just remember that, you know, our group has fun doing this. Um, you know, we we joke around with Chris a lot, but, you know, he he's really cool about letting us do this type of stuff. He's really cool about us going about this. So, you know, nobody here is suffering. Um, we've always, always, always asked Chris um, before we do anything, we ask him if it's okay. And we definitely let him know like, Hey, if this is too game breaking, feel free to tell us no, you know, because, you know, we, we don't want it to be a headache for him. We want him to have just as much fun as we are. Um, but, you know, he, he enjoys it because he knows that me, all of us are having a great time. And I feel like Chris kind of really enjoys letting other people have a lot of fun. Ooh. And we haven't even gotten into some of the, the crazy shit these days. Like, uh, I mean, we talked about the rail gun. We didn't talk about the like 13 pages of math that went into the rail gun that Chris had to proofread. Oh yeah, the the kind of like what was it, like ten thousand d six or something like that, something along the lines. Yeah, it was using the uh, the force, uh, the electrical energy created by shocking grasp, and converting it using the damage to momentum conversion of the catapult spell, something like that, and then just amping it up on a massive fucking scale. Yeah, if you ever want numbers ran for any type of real life thing to um, Dungeons and Dragons, Brock's going to be your guy to get a hold of. Uh, he is absolutely insane with finding the proper equations, adding it all up, and getting there. Because I've seen a lot of your uh, handiwork, is what I will call it, and it's frightening. It is absolutely frightening. That's why I'm so scared of having too much realism in a game because I just get like nightmare flashbacks to the railgun and everything that went into that. And I'm like, oh God, never again. Never again. Yeah. 
that's uh yeah realism and D do not mix like the classic peasant rail gun with uh like held actions to pass a pole along through like 20 peasants or so and i feel like your pole's traveling really fast i feel like brock needs to be on some sort of like registry when uh applying to new games just in case oh gee thanks i'm a D sex offender <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Um I mean let, let's not talk about the doors, but you know. Oh, we've talked well, about Well, they the consented. Doors. Yeah, they consented. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, man. Um but yeah, I mean, besides that, um you know, I guess converting topics just a little bit. Uh the Legends of Vox Machina. I've recently finished that up. I know Tori just mentioned that she just finished it mm-hmm. up what, last night. And then I'm yeah. sure Brock finished it the moment it was all released. Yep, I did. I watched it as it was coming out, and I have not actually watched it since, so details are a little fuzzy. Sure. I, uh, I I watched it as it was coming out until episode five, and then I took a break just because I couldn't get enough of it, so I just had to... I was like, I'll just wait until it's all out, and then, you know, I'm... I'm if it's not... If you can't tell, I'm sick with COVID, so I've had a lot of free time right i finished um, it all last night yeah we'll uh was we'll, disappointed. we'll spend the rest of the uh podcast talking about this so if you guys have not watched it anybody now is the time to click off to head out um you know um spoilers obviously. for obviously legends of vox machina maybe a little bit of what's currently going on in critical, critical role roles. yeah so be sure to uh you know kind of hop out now thanks for listening we appreciate it um and we'll catch you the next time for the next podcast uh but that being said and proper warnings uh given out yeah first impressions um right off the bat i really enjoyed it however i felt like it was moving too fast but at the same time i understand you know you've only got so much time a lot of production value and cost goes into this and um you know in terms of D, you know uh, a span of you know say three minutes it can turn into a four hour long session or campaign so i totally understand that mm-hmm. um, and i understand where they were coming from i haven't seen uh, i haven't i haven't actually watched campaign one but from what i've read um obviously they they started filming it um after they were already going through a bit of a home game so whenever people say usually when they recommend starting campaign one they say start at the briarwood arc um so i i see how the first two episodes they kind of had to lead into what that was going right yeah going into the briarwood arc i definitely Um, saw that um i saw the the kind of quick swap from doing uh the killing the dragon the dude that turned into a dragon and then swapping straight to the briarwood arc and it was really quick a really quick transition and like i said you know i i give them some slack or give them quite a bit of slack on it just because i understand it costs money there's uh, a lot that goes into it and trying to tell all of campaign one story in uh, uh, one kind of sitting is kind of really tough you know and i mean here's the thing is that i don't think that season one tells the whole story like i said i haven't watched the the whole campaign but um i also think it's kind of um what's the word i'm looking for 
realistic or like homage to the fact that because they had already started playing this campaign before they started filming it, like these were already established characters. So getting into, um, you know, Legend of Vox Machina and, you know, they're already an established group. It, it mirrors how I believe that those streams started. And I didn't watch any of campaign one except for like the uh, the big one shots they had, like the five hour long ones. So yeah, I, I had nothing. Yeah, I had nothing going into this. Um, but that does like a What's lot of closet. I don't know the one, the the wedding one. I watched that one. Yep. <laughs> I watched the wedding one. Um, it wasn't a main story one, but. Um, I think they were all bears. Raccoons. Just had like... The ones where they that... stole the cars? No, this was... Um... Oh, man, I don't remember the whole thing really well, but they, like, stole hats and dresses and stuff and tried to sneak in somewhere. Oh. It was a D6-based system where, like, uh, the all the bears were essentially rogues, and if you did something that was, like, human, you rolled a D6 and, like, moved towards, like, the human side of something. But if you did something like bearish, then you rolled a d6 and moved towards the animal side. And if you like hit one side or the other, then your character was basically out or something like that. So I had to balance like between being bears and being him. That was awesome. a weird one shot. That sounds <laughs> awesome. I would totally play in that if somebody was to host that. Yeah. And then, of course, I watched both of the battle royales. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I wanted to watch those. I never got the chance to. I heard those were really good. Yeah, there was there was some good moments in there. Um, we ran a very similar battle royale to one of those in a uh, in an old group I was a part of that um, actually ended quite similar. Not as cool as uh, ah, what was it? Armor of Agathus or like a, a flaming shield or something? Um, taking out the last person with recoil damage. It's kind of nutty. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, back on Legend of Vox, you know, what um what was your guys' favorite part if you remember? Um uh honestly, any part that had Scantlin in it was my favorite. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Like he uh <laughs> instead of calling it the ziggurat, the zipper twat, oh that oh fucking that killed me. <laughs> I, I was dying. I was literally dying on the floor. Um, when he went up to the zombies, uh, or that he thought were humans making out or whatever, he's like, "Hey, can I get in on this?" And he got closer, and it was zombies, and he's like, "Whoa, okay, never mind." He's like, "Of course, zombies, cause fuck me." <laughs> um, or when he, the first time he shot, um, the the electricity or Bigme's hand or whatever it was out of his crotch to hit the guy, <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, on top of the, I think they were on the building or whatever that was on fire. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know. And, and more on the serious side of things, or like the people that like weren't like comedic. Um, during it, uh, the whole part with Percy was really nice. I really enjoyed how they portrayed Percy and how like just the internal struggle you see it on the outside, you know. Mm -hmm. I I enjoyed the um the sort of like 
that that I think it was the last episode where he was it was like go into these like flashbacks and how he was reacting and then it would go to the uh to what was actually happening and how he was seeing his friends as the people he wanted to kill and stuff like that that was yeah. really interesting yeah yeah that was cool I don't know. I, I feel like the whole like sh- the show as a whole had kind of like a bittersweet taste to it. Um, because I mean, Grog being an idiot is always fun. Um, his interactions with the spiritual form of Pike at the end, I think, were probably some of the most fun. Um, I still, I don't know. I feel like the character of Pike got sidelined, and I know that. At least I believe I know that this happened in the real game because Pike had to like step away from the table for a while, if I remember yeah. correctly. Uh, yeah, she uh, was actually in a, a TV series um, filming somewhere else. So she actually had to leave and she was doing that for quite some time. So she was away. I think during I think during campaign one, it was actually when she was uh, when Ashley was doing Last of Us. So that's why uh, it, it might have been two, it might have been that too. Campaign two, she was doing Blind Spot, um, but I I I enjoyed those moments actually because then it kind of explained where Pike was. Right, it, it filled in those blanks and it showed that it wasn't just a oh they're gone they went on a spiritual journey they're back it's it shows mm-hmm. Pike struggling with that. And, and I enjoyed the part where like she's talking to the Everlight and they're like who are you and they're they're showing like are you you know a member of like this Everlight temple or whatever or or are you with your friends and stuff like that that was really really nice and it was saying like you you it doesn't matter who you are as long as you are true to yourself being yourself yeah. in the light and that was really nice i i guess throughout the whole kind of uh vox machina series uh, the moral dilemmas and choices they were all given was really something cool to see because like I said, um, you know, a span of three minutes or even two minutes, a minute in the Vox Machina series is the span of a couple sessions in the actual campaign. So, you know, it's kind of harder to see that grasp, especially when, you know, it's, yeah, you see the moment, but then you go a week without seeing anything. And then, you know, you see a little bit more of it the next week and then, then following week, uh, same thing. Whereas in this, you, you see it all together and it's a very real and uh their moment Mm -hmm. and i i know when they were developing it i i'm pretty sure they said that there were some things that they weren't able to like really get into during the actual campaign just because of like you know sidetracking and all that and they were able to not like rewrite the story but add to it yeah kind of take out the filler and really enhance the main story basically is yeah, what and I, I think understood. I think one of those uh, things that they were referencing to when they were talking about it was definitely a the Pike um, stuff, and probably stuff to do with like Delilah's backstory. Yeah, probably yeah. stuff to do with um, like just a lot of like the flashback sort of moments. They were able to kind yeah, of get honestly. Into more. I thought I remembered the way it went in the session, um, at least when they fought, um, uh, I think her name was Delilah, and uh, what was her guy's name? Silas. Uh, 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 Silas, yeah. And so um, I remember Silas actually, because he's a vampire, he was like misty formed, and he was almost able to escape or did escape or something. 
Um, but that wasn't the same here. Uh, in the actual thing, he was just obliterated. Mm, um, and I think, didn't they, like, I say, like, I don't remember, like, I watched this last night, but um, they actually did kill Delilah. Yeah, and oh yeah. They, they did not in uh, the campaign, the actual campaign one she got away yeah and it was it's it's just a cool overall a cool instance to see it like visually and the way that the the crew kind of or the team the party envisioned it in their minds and you know all that brought to a screen and then you see exactly kind of where their inputs and where their changes have tweaked it to where what they had thought they saw you know and and their kind of um, creativity in their minds. So it was really cool to, to step out of my own mind and step into theirs, for lack of a better way of saying it. Mm-hmm. I think... It... Sorry, go ahead. No, I feel like it was, like, a real... It's a really good, like, idea to, to bring out, like, the D&D story of, like, such a famous campaign, especially. But I, like you guys were saying, there's a lot of nuances that are missing. And I've kind of been struggling for the past couple minutes here, like thinking, what conflict did Vex have during this show? Like, aside from Vax and... Uh... Holy shit. Druid girl. What the fuck is her name? Keyleth. Thank you. Oh my god. It's late. Um, But yeah, besides Vax and Keyleth, having something going on what did vex have for like any development throughout that whole show that's true she really didn't have like too much of a of a stance it was kind of the same way that um bex in our game uh or uh cora uh is kind of like the team mom you know what i mean yeah the the the, the voice of uh i don't want to say exact reason but kind of the one that just you know is there and keeps everyone relatively together and in line um and that's i got real big cora vibes from uh watching that that, i think the whole it it wasn't specifically like showcased too much but i think it was um they kept mentioning um how vex wanted to leave with her brother like we can go at any time or whatever, but like circumstances and stuff kept holding her back. And then eventually, um, like there was this whole thing where she said, like, we'll never abandon you, Percy, or whatever like that. And it, it's, I think that was the moment where it was kind of like. Yeah, enough of the development of the change of character, the transition. Yeah, I, I but def- I think it was like one of those like background sort of things. Right. Yeah. It, was, it could have been amped up a little bit, I think, personally. And, you know, who knows? We They may make a season two of campaign one before they even move to campaign two, you know? So they're, they're, Aren't they already greenlit for a season two? Um, yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure. I, I haven't read up on it, so I don't know if that's going to be campaign two or if that's actually going to oh, be a no, continuation. No, no, no. I think that uh, because it's called Legend of Vox Machina, I think it's just focusing on campaign one. Right, because they changed party names between campaigns and stuff. That's true. Uh, yeah. Mighty Nine, I think, was next or whatever. Well, yeah, I Mighty mean, Nine. 
it could always come I, out to be like a sub-series of Vox Machina where it is the Mighty Nine like story arc. I would love to see a Mighty Nine animated series because Oh yeah. That was that my be- favorite. I I did watch all of that. That was my favorite. And honestly, Campaign 3 is starting to really amp up really cool, especially because there are um references to Campaign 1 in it, because they're not so afraid to like that, that was the thing um, with Campaign 2. They wanted to stray away from Campaign 1 and not really have any references to it. But now that they're on Campaign 3, they, they're kind of letting loose about it. <clears throat> yeah, and that's kind of nice because, you know, why move so far away? Yes, you have a legacy, but that doesn't mean you need to be afraid of it. You know, I, I get where you want to kind of differentiate your characters and i think they did a really good job of that in season two differentiating their characters but i really think that they could have played on the fact that the uh that fox machina was part of their their history you know or you know their future whatever it was um you know in some way shape or form you know it would be nice to see those kind of little easter eggs or kind of moments where um the mighty nine was based what 40 years after vox machina or was it before Vox Machina, ten. It was ten years after, I think. Okay, and so and it, it'd be really three. cool to see what Vox Machina kind of reaped for the world and how that kind of left an imprint. You know, um, I mean, you see that a lot in Campaign Three, like. Oh yeah, again, like right off the bat, um, what's his name? Uh, Travis. Bill. Uh, yeah, he he he's like, yeah, I I I ran with uh I ran with uh Vox Machina way back when or whatever, and it's like. Hell yes. 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 That's what I wanted I mean, to hear. Going back into um like the Legend of Ox Machina, one of my favorite parts um is because of Campaign 3, because in Campaign 3 there's a um Mercia's character, Ladna, is from Whitestone. Um, and she reveals that she was one of the um the people that was strung up on the sun tree as like the um stand-ins for Vox Machina. Really? Um, yes, she was, I believe That's she was, cool. um, she was um, supposed to be Vex. So That's she was, so cool. Yes, so that's why it's one of my favorite moments in the animated show, because it's like, that's technically Ladna. Oh my god, that, that's awesome. And, you know, I'm sure there were kind of hints in there towards it, you know, like in the well, I mean, animated her, part her of patron, it. Her patron is Delilah. I wonder how that worked. Um, Especially with the animated series, if they killed Delilah. Well, so, I mean, it's kind of the same. I imagine it's sort of the same situation that I have on in our Friday campaign with how Kane is my patron. Maybe. How he's gone, but not completely but i I thought like all her powers were ripped from her from the patron she was following and everything and then she was just straight out murdered and then um rightfully so uh and then you know so i thought she was just gone you know unless she well you gotta think that um it's like this weird sort of like is canon or not canon sort of thing i i know that um in campaign three they're um they're taking the the can canonicity of that whole situation from campaign one 
but it's cool that they're referencing um, basically that imagery of like the seven strung up in the tree and then technically one of them is Laudna and you you only really know that if you watch campaign three yeah well um i guess we've hit our time limit for tonight um i want to say uh thank you tori for joining us and being a guest you're always welcome back if you're ever interested in coming back um i don't know you might have to ask nicely next time but absolutely uh... We'll yeah, I thought we asked fairly nicely. I mean, gunpoint's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to join again. Um, at the end of this, I always ask if there's anything that you guys would like to have linked or put up or anything that, you know, if, for instance, people did want to find a way to um, follow you around or whatever, you know, uh, Twitter what and whatnot. Um, now's I don't the time. know. I mean, I... I, I stream my games on uh, Saturday nights on Twitch, ToriU underscore gaming. you find me there. All right. Right on YouTube, we are D&D Fight Club. Uh, you can check us out. We do basic build optimization and these podcasts as well for Tiefling Talks. Yep. Um on my end, I uh, have a start plane that I host 11 sessions now, which is really, really wearing on me a little bit. Not going to lie, but, you know, it's it's still fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, just search me up, uh, GM Gage, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find me. And uh, like I said, uh, I'll put all the links in the description. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us for another week of the Tiefling Talks podcast, and uh, I do want to mention also real quick at the end, uh, Tori has made us a incredible logo to start using, so you guys should be able to start seeing that here soon. So Alrighty. <laughs> no problem. Get right. you that branding. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks for stopping by, saying hi, and, uh, you know, listening in on us and uh, all our chaotic, stupid stuff. And uh, we will see you next week for another session. Catch you later, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs>